0: The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Haycock, a podcast from The Irish Times. This week, I'll be looking at the government's latest package of cost of living measures to help people deal with high inflation. Jack Horgan-Jones and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times will join me for that segment. And in the second half of the show, Conor Pope, Consumer Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times, will explain how Revolut customers have become the latest targets for scammers. But first to the cost of living package announced by the Coalition on Tuesday. It's worth €1.3 billion and is designed to provide further assistance to families against price rises and inflation. Jack Hogan-Jones and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times join me for this discussion and I began by asking Jack to take us through the main measures in the package. So, a whole
2: range of things announced yesterday Karen the most uh, the most eye grabbing I suppose are the the direct cash payments of which there are two really there 's uh, a two hundred euro top up or bonus or whatever construction you want to put on it for welfare recipients so people in receip- in receipt of the one of the weekly welfare schemes so you 'd be looking at carers, people on unemployment assistance uh, loan parents people like that will get a once off bonus of, of two hundred euros and then there 's one hundred euros. For parents as well, which will come um, on top of the uh, monthly child benefit, Uh, it would be 100 euros per child. And that is kind of being uh, construed as as a universal measure. It's, to my mind, a kind of semi-universal measure in that it, it, it targets a broad swathe of people and a broad uh, swathe of voters and being, being families, but it doesn't quite target everyone. And um, if you want to look for something truly universal, I suppose you could argue that the extension to the lowered rate of VAT on electricity bills, which are charged a VAT of 9%, um, that has been extended and you could also probably argue that the gradual phasing out of uh, lower rates of excise duty on uh, on on motor fuels is also a universal benefit, albeit it's it's kind of the slow death of something as opposed to a cliff edge. So you could maybe argue that it's not it's not strictly speaking a uh, a universal benefit. So the 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 sense is this is more of a targeted uh, package than before. It's certainly a smaller package than the last time out. And in addition to those kind of spending uh, measures that I've already talked about and some of the tax measures, there is also the the big headline on the tax side is the decision to go ahead with. The ongoing temporary reduction, temporary perhaps in inverted commas at this stage on VAT and the tourism and hospitality industry, again, con- uh, continuing at the 9% rate rather than going back up to the 13.5% rate. There's a big cost associated with that, that the government is foregoing uh, tax revenues of uh, about 300 million uh, to put that out to uh, to the end of August of this year. They are swearing uh, blind that this is the last time they'll do it But of course they always say that So we can prepare ourselves for yet another round of uh, Lobbying, intensive lobbying uh, Over the government, over the retention of this As we uh, head towards the end of summer um, There's a couple other things as well For the purposes of the audience This, this podcast in particular They should be paying attention to the uh, Alterations to the temporary business energy support scheme uh, In the jargon, the TBES uh, Which has been overhauled There was a very low take up of this 1.2 billion euro scheme that was announced on budget which is designed to help businesses meet some of the uplift of the cost that they're facing associated with larger energy bills. And um, basically the, the 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 sense in government was that, uh, A, it wasn't generous enough. So uh, the, the amount that can be paid out is being put up from 10,000 to 15,000, and B, that the entry criteria was just a little bit too difficult to achieve. So you had to show that 50%, that, that you were facing an increase in the unit cost of your electricity of 50% versus 2021 that's been lowered to uh, to 30%, so you have a, a lowering of the floor and a, and a heightening of the of the ceiling. And um, And they've also said that it can now meet uh fifty percent of that uplift as opposed to forty percent so so tweaks to that and and I hope that they will actually be able to spend the money that's allocated to it for this year, which is six hundred and fifty of the the one point two billion those are the those are the headline items There are some other bits of bobs there one hundred euro on back to school clothing and um, the reintroduction of a capped and limited fee for uh for school transport and there, there's other bits of bobs, but I, I suspect anyone who wants to know a more granular level level of detail than that can log on to gov.e where they get all the info.
1: Yeah, sure. Now, there was no extension, no extra €200 electricity credit uh, for this summer, and that would have been a universal credit, I guess. that That would have gone to every household. What was the thinking or what kind of horse trading was going on in the background, Jack, around that?
2: Well, yes, it would have been universal, and it would have been very expensive. I mean, each one of these credits costs about four hundred million euros. So the three that we got over the winter fuel heating season, the last of which is due to arrive in next month, costs one point two billion. That's a that's a significant chunk of change. Uh, and there, nonetheless, there had been a push underway, particularly from Fine Gael, who hold very tightly this idea that you know that that party will deliver. On the universal side, and the two hundred euro electricity tax credits are seen as a very uh, as a very effective way of doing that, because obviously you know every household in the country has an electricity account, and it's a very quick way to get money into those households. A few lines of opposition against it, right? First of all, the criticism that it is in and of, in and of itself inflationary. I'm kind of not totally convinced on that, although I can see the merits of the argument. You know, it's not a permanent increase in in, in a, a welfare payment or anything like that. It is something that will wash through the 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 system. Over time, but nonetheless, you know, one of the one of the black marks against that, so to speak, is that it's inflationary. The other is that it is, is, is that very nature that I like about it is its universality. And uh, there are people, particularly in the Green Party, uh, who kind of think that there is a problem. And you can see the logic of this, that there's a problem in giving this to millionaires as well as paupers and, you know, giving it to people with second homes and giving it to, you know, so if you have two or three homes, if you're in the lucky position, you'll have not just the one for your primary uh, dwelling house, but also for your, your one or two holiday homes as well. The politics of that don't stack up um, for you know people who would see themselves on the left or the left of the Green Party, um, and then finally there's to my mind the most persuasive argument on this, which is that we are coming out of winter and out of the the colder months of the year, thanks be to God. And you know now is not the time to give people a, a lower and perhaps an artificially low impression of what their uh, what their bills would be over summer. If you're going to do it, you keep the powder dry. You reassess in the autumn at budget time. Both the exchequer position, although there is still strong confidence in government that the exchequer will be in in root health uh, come budget time, and uh, also the the need. So we've been we've been hearing quite a lot in uh, recent weeks about the the decrease in the wholesale cost of price, and when and if that will start filtering through to to the retail. Price of energy. Uh, it looks like that's beginning to happen. I believe it was Pinergy this week that um, that announced that they're big, they're going to start passing that through to customers. So you know the the expectation, and indeed this is an articulated expectation, a, a a near command from the political system to the utility companies that they want to see that being passed through. So we may be in a situation at the end of um, at the end of summer, at the start of autumn, when they start to, to cogitate on these things again, where utility bills have come down. Um, and they may not have to go again. But all things being equal, the more cautious side of the house, one out on that, and we won't be getting a, a summer electricity credit.
1: Cliff Taylor, that 200 euro energy credit isn't just going to households, it's also going to the energy companies, uh, of course. Um, and I just wonder if this is a, a signal from the government that energy companies, given that wholesale gas prices have fallen, you know, substantially over, over uh, recent months, that they really should be bringing down their, their prices. And that's where the, the reduction should come for people, and, and not just from the fact that we're going to be using, hopefully, less less fuel to uh, heat our homes.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt there's political pressure now. You saw it for the Taoiseach again yesterday. Saying, look, I'm watching the energy companies. They won't be happy if they uh, if they're reporting supernormal profits. Might have to do something about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's a, a windfall tax in in the wind anyway uh, for energy energy producers. Um, it's a hard one to call. Really, I mean, Pinergy was the first company to announce a cut. Their
1: rates were well above the market norm uh, because of the kind of way they operated. So are they just coming back to the pack or is this a signal that all of them are going, is there going to be a domino effect here?
3: I I don't, I think it's probably a bit strong to say there's going to be a domino effect. Looking at what's happening in the UK where they have a different kind of price cap system, uh, we can see the cap there coming down a little bit. So I would see, think we would probably see the big companies start to move Maybe over the coming months, with with small enough reductions, I I think the real signal will be when one of the first big companies move uh, to cut their prices. The big uh, kind of general uh, electricity and gas producers. In fairness to them, at the moment, uh, legally it would be difficult for them. I think to kind of hint at that because that would be seen as price signalling. Uh, which you know legally is is uh, is difficult, and they might have the competition commission onto them in in that regard, but i I do think they'll be assessing their position, looking at what the government is saying. So I think we could see some increases start to start to come through over the next next few months, uh, you know, will it be over the summer? will it be heading into next winter? Hard to say, but I think there will be if wholesale prices do hold where they are, we will see some smallish reductions start to come through. What I mean, would
1: you expect? What kind of percentage?
3: It's it's very it's it's really hard to know, uh, Kieran. The, the The problem is, I suppose, from looking back historically, prices shot up during the war, uh, and, and have now kind of shot down to where they were before the war started. But the problem was that they had already increased and are still kind of gas wholesale prices are still not far off three times what they were kind of heading up to 2020. In other words, the kind of price level we've been used to for years and years because energy prices had been remarkably stable. So the the, the gas companies have, have, you know, two arguments. Uh, one is that the wholesale prices are still way higher than historical norms. Uh, and the second is that they bought forward on the market uh, and that they've hedged and that they have to leave time for those hedges to run out uh, but I think if we if we see prices staying where they are, I would expect to see some small, would it be five or ten percent reductions, uh, over the coming months. But obviously, it, that's only ch- starting to chip away at the kind of increases we've seen uh, since the crisis broke, which have seen energy prices go up by multiples. Um, a lot of nervousness, I think, still around about wholesale prices. Uh, there's no doubt that Europe has done better than expected, weaning itself off Russian gas uh, and, and and oil to some extent. There's been a mild winter. Prices have come down a lot more, I think, than than anyone would have expected. But I think the the other reason the companies are holding off, they just want to see how things pan out over the next few months. Is there going to be a, a spike back upwards in heading towards next winter? Uh, you know, you get a patch of cold weather heading into next winter. Are we are we going to be back to where we were? Could Might the wars, you know, no one knows what, what the course of the war is going to be. A lot of bellicose statements from both sides yesterday. So still a lot of uncertainty out there. But if prices stay where they are and the wholesale market or fall a bit, I do think we're going to see that pass to consumers sooner rather than later.
1: Jack, why have they extended the special 9% VAT rate for the hospitality sector? Because we know that uh, officials in the Department of Finance want rid of it. They've wanted rid of it uh, in the past. They did get rid of it temporarily, and then COVID came, came along and was reintroduced. So, And it is costing a lot of money, right? So why, uh, why have they decided to extend it?
2: Because the hospitality lobby is incredibly powerful. Uh, that's that 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 is the only reason uh, to my mind. um so the nature of the hospitality industry plays on the particular weaknesses of the political system in that it's spread out across the country. a lot of people work in it. It has a lot of kind of strong advocacy, both in the media and also directly into uh, the kind of extremely permeable underbelly of Irish politics. So, you know, to translate that, you know, they get it in the neck a lot from the hoteliers and restaurateurs in their areas, they being the the government TDs. They get it particularly strongly in rural areas, uh, often where uh, tourism and hospitality can play a kind of outsized uh, role in the local economy compared to, you know, a more diversified urban centre. Um, They get it, you know, the the importance of the seasonal trade, uh, the importance of of employment, obviously, um, at a kind of lower wage level as well, you know, so they get this kind of surround effect of pressure. at nearly all times, to 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 you know be receptive to the interest of the hospitality industry, and that builds to a peak around the nine percent and the extension of the nine percent, and that historically has made this an incredibly difficult measure to push back in the box once it's taken out. Uh, Cliff and you, Karen, will both recall that I think this was originally introduced during the financial crisis as a way to try and
1: help an industry yep. that was two thousand eleven
2: help an industry that was really on its knees at the time. Um, and it took absolutely ages and multiple attempts. And I think it was only, you know, after confidence and supply, during which it must be noted that the current Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, was a strong advocate for retention of the lower 9% uh, levy. It was only after confidence and supply that they managed to to kind of put away that recession era instrument, uh, well after the recession had, en- had ended. And then during COVID, uh, again, you know, we shouldn't underplay the seriousness of the challenges that were facing the sector during uh, COVID because obviously no one was doing anything and there were no, there was no tourism. So, you know, it was thrown as another lifeline uh, to, to the industry. And yet again, it is proving, for all the reasons I've outlined, to be remarkably difficult to put away. Um, and, and, you know, the only constituency, other than backbench TDs, uh, that advocates for this, and indeed government ministers as well, uh, is the industry itself. I mean, it has... Basically, no friends in the policy-making space or amongst the kind of think-tank intelligentsia, the kind of policy wonks who advise government, they all don't think this is a good idea. You know, the ESRI, the Commission on Tax and Welfare, the officials in the Department of Finance, uh, the Fiscal Advisory Council. I was talking to Sebastian Barnes yesterday. This was really the the one only true point of objection that he had to to the latest cost of living measures was the fact that this was eating up such an amount of of money and that, you know, there seemed to be no external logic for it. But nonetheless, the uh, the 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 permeability of uh, the political system to these kind of arguments is matched only and on, at times by the, its impermeability when it comes to to logic on on things like this, and therefore we get another another few months of this, and and as I said at the top, another big row at the end of August.
1: Uh, Cliff, it's been extended to the end of August, and I just wonder is there a significance in that because obviously the end of August is the end of summer. Mm. Now, if they'd lifted it, uh, arguably the hotels and restaurants would have had to put up their prices or at least. That's that's what a lot of them were were sure. telling us. So people would have had to pay more uh, both for dining out, but also for their staycations, if they decide to stay in Ireland. I mean, it seems like a daft argument, but I just wonder whether there's some something in that—the fact that they've extended it till the end of August.
3: Well, they were telling us that the the restaurant and and, and uh, hotel industry were telling us that the the industry would be laid waste if if the if if the increase came through. Uh, Look, you can see the argument, but I did. Smile when I heard uh, Finance Minister Michael McGrath say yesterday uh, with this kind of most serious face on uh, that this was being done to hold down inflation over the summer uh, because I'm pretty sure that uh, the Minister and all his officials uh, have been arguing and batting pretty strongly to get rid of this right through these talks and and this was kind of a last-minute compromise. And talking to another person in the political system yesterday uh, kind of said to me, look, it's all very well for you guys and the think tanks and the media and all that to call for the abolition of this, but you don't have backbenchers. And I think, as Jack said, you know, the industry has very cleverly lobbied, targeted uh, backbenchers, uh, the Fianna Fáil backbenchers, the Fine Gael backbenchers to, to, to some extent as well, and just got enough pressure to get this over the line for another few months, and it is going to be very interesting to see what happens because the uh, the campaign to extend it beyond summer started about on the six o'clock news last night when Adrian Cummins from the Restaurant Association was on saying, "Oh, we think this should be a permanent measure." And look, that's fine; that's what he's paid for. But uh, I think the uh, the government faces a fight on this, and there's no doubt that the industry isn't gonna isn't going to go away. It, it'll probably depend to some extent on how the summer season goes and whether hotels again are, as they were uh, last year, accused of price gouging and, and shoving up prices and charging too much for holidays at home. If the industry's on its best behaviour, maybe it'll have an argument to extend it even further. Yeah, but...
1: Maybe the prices have already, the price increases have already been yeah, baked yeah,
3: in. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. All right, yeah. I mean,
1: if you try can, and... can they get can they get much more expensive? It's well, exactly. The <laughs> is, question. If no. you go out to a restaurant in Dublin you want to have a steak, I mean, you nearly have to sell one of your children to afford it it's uh, it's quite expensive now it is and i i very much doubt uh, reducing you the... wouldn't get the full child benefit then as well as well <laughs> that's true <laughs> um and I very much doubt that the likes of Shelburne or Ashford Castle or whatever are going to be, uh, you know, devastated by by going back up. But it oh, is, so. you know, it is a, as Jack said, it's a, an industry that reaches into every town and village right across the country, and there are players of all sort of sorts of shapes and sizes, and no doubt a lot of them are, are feeling the pain. What else uh, struck you about this cliff? I just thought it's a one point three billion euro package. It's not that long ago that we would have been uh, in awe if that Absolutely. kind of announcement was made on budget day. Yeah, but now we're. Pretty
3: blase, it. we are. I suppose we did an eleven billion budget last uh, last uh, September. Here on so a billion, a billion and a bit seems uh, uh, not quite a pittance, but not a huge amount of money. And look, I think if you look at the um, if if you look at the Exchequer finances for this year, uh, and the money that was set aside in contingency funds and the buoyancy and tax revenue, the fact that we're aiming for a surplus, it's kind of insignificant in financial terms in terms of the overall budget. I think there's there's no doubt that this can be afforded this year. Uh, it's not going to ch- it's not going to throw the budget figures off track. It's not going to push up borrowing. Uh the government will still be able to stay within its spending limits. Uh and I think they were all important things for uh for Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue. And and I you know while it while it isn't significant in, uh, in in the short term and its immediate cost, I think the battle that they, you know, that they undertook was to try and put down a marker that these things were going to be phased out, that we weren't going to start seeing, for example, the €200 energy credit as a semi-permanent measure or the 9% VAT rate uh, or or these kind of once-off welfare measures whenever energy bills went up. And to some extent, and to a large extent, I guess they have laid down that marker. A lot of stuff, you know, there are once-off payments being made but not additional permanent commitments. Um, The special tax measures, the excise and fuel, the lower VAT rate and energy bills are going to be phased out, uh, you know, assuming that that does continue. So, to some extent, I, I think uh, Michael McGrath, Pascale Dunne have 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 won here in terms of keeping a rein on things and not going, you know, not going into a massive kind of two or three billion euro package as some of their other cabinet ministers would perhaps have liked, and which the figures for this year would have allowed. Um, but the flip side of that, I think, is that there's going to be huge pressure yet again ahead of the budget. And part of the argument is that, you know, are we now looking at a period when energy prices for households are energy bills for households are going to remain permanently higher than they they have done kind of than we got used to for many years? And is that going to require, you know, some kind of more ongoing support for less well off households uh, over the next three or four years? And how is that going to be structured? And um, as um, as Jack said, you know, the problem with the 200 euro credit is that it goes to everybody. Um, it goes to the rich, the poor, the middle. Uh, there's a lot of what economists call deadweight loss there. In other words, giving money to people don't, who don't need it. Uh, there's a lot of households who probably didn't even notice that their energy their energy bills on direct debit. A lot of households didn't even notice that, uh, that um, you know, they got the 200 euro.
1: Jack, sorry, you wanted to jump in. Well, I just, I just wanted to make the point
2: that, like, you know, Cliff uh, is correct, that, you know, sound economic policy, and Cliff obviously is a, is a consistent advocate for a sound economic policy, <laughs> uh, would dictate that all this gets generated um, and and pointed towards uh, lower-income households. And, you know, the problem is that, like, Fine Gael has set itself up as, mm-hmm. as the, the custodian of the interests of the people who get up early in the morning. And the people who get up early in the morning are, and there, there is logic to this argument as well, of course, the, the, those households are under pressure. As well, and if you introduce only targeted measures, uh, it kind of flies in the face of that doctrine that has now been established by by this government, and also introduces the the prospect of you know a whole uh, a whole barrage of kind of Joe Duffy calls hard cases, you know, mm. people who are just outside the cutoff point, and the politics of that are really difficult. They're really difficult, especially for Fine Gale. Um, so I think that like the, the 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 logic for continuing, or at least the political internal logic for continuing in the vein that they have done so remains intact on the far side of the summer and as we head into the budget season if the broader period for the or if the broader outlook for the exchequer is is as healthy as it is now and it is pretty healthy as well like I mean they have I can't remember the exact figure but they have several billion in contingency funds uh, for this year Quite a lot of that will be not... They have six you know, billion,
1: I think, Jack, in the Reserve Fund or any day fund, as you like it.
2: it's, uh, and, and they have a tremendous amount of money, I think, in, in other pots of, of mm. uh, that are stashed around the place as well that will be used to pay for Ukrainian hotel accommodation and the likes. But, like, they haven't... My understanding is they haven't actually had to use any of that for this package. So I yeah. think that the spending measures were used, were generated from savings um, in the social welfare budget or, you know, just the, the, the social protection budget. that wasn't quite as, as, as maxed out as as They anticipated, so they were able to save it from that side. And then on the tax side, they're they're fairly relaxed about it. You know, notwithstanding the kind of doom and gloom in the wider uh, the wider kind of global economy, they point to the the quarter four uh, tax returns and they say, "Look, corporate tax still strong, payroll tax still strong. You know, we feel pretty pretty confident or as confident as we can be at this juncture going forward." You know, so I don't I don't I don't see I don't see the underlying political logic changing too much.
3: Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really interesting point, and it's a really interesting position for Finnegale in particular. I mean, Leo Varadkar was saying before this package that there had to be universal measures that the working people had to be supported, uh, and at the end of the day, they were, you know, they were fairly limited. Uh, the, the, the universal measures beyond the child benefit, and that, as Jack said earlier, the extension of uh, the fuel support. I think Fine Gael would also see itself being positioned as kind of the, the party of fiscal responsibility, uh, the party, you know, that mines the national finances. Uh, While others on the opposition benches, particularly Sinn Féin, are wanting to spend money right, left and centre.
2: I'm not sure there's many votes in that
1: though.
3: No, I I agree with you. And uh, the flip point of that is how do you, in that context, how do you target help?
1: But, you know, what
3: Fianna Gale would see as a squeeze middle. On that
1: that point, Jack, what was the opposition uh, reaction? More, 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 I presume. Yeah, look, it's 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 more more more.
2: Um and, you know, there's there's a particular I think there is a bit of a weakness, although I I I wouldn't overstate it, in the fact that they have uh extended the VAT code for hospitality um and you know, all these kind of moneyed hoteliers and and restaurateurs and so on that are conjured up by the opposition uh, and not been quite as generous. For example, on the child benefit, which is uh, coming in at a level, as, as I said, of one hundred euros per child, as opposed to the usual uh, one hundred and forty, and it was paid at a bonus level of one hundred and forty in, in in the budget. Like, I, I think that the, the 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 opposition they like I don't think they see this as a as a particularly kind of fruitful avenue to go down. Uh, Ultimately, at the end of the day, the government is spending a lot of money. Yes, they will criticize the choices that are made therein and, you know, the implementation or execution, but like they're kind of in the same space. And I was writing about this in the Political uh, Digest this morning, which I can recommend to our business audience as well. I was writing about this this morning. The, the opposition find themselves to an extent in the same st- space that they were on COVID where they will criticize implementation. But by and large, you know, the policy stance is is, is pretty much one that will be common no matter what government was in power, you know I think that the, there's some commonality there with the the migration debate as well. Any of the mainstream parties, they'll they'll criticise around the edges, but would they fundamentally do anything different? I'm not sure. The opposition wants to get back to health and housing, where they're able to say things like a Sinn Fein government would do something radically different and and change the system, um, because they can do that with credibility. And I think that that kind of criticism actually travels more.
3: Yeah, I think it was I think it was opposition by road to to a large extent, and it was interesting, as Jack said that. Uh, uh, Mary Lou McDonald's main argument was what about the renters now and people who are on uh, facing high mortgage repayments Now, that wasn't what this package was about but it's an attempt I think to move the back the argument back in that direction.
1: Cliff we mentioned the uh, the taxation picture and it has undoubtedly been very strong over the last uh, few years both in terms of income tax returns and uh, particularly in, in corporation taxes well over 20 billion now, huge, huge numbers. But I just wonder: is that picture beginning to going to begin to change? Because just this morning, we had Google confirming the two hundred and forty jobs going at Ireland. Now they employ thousands here, so it's still, you know, a relatively small number in the overall uh, mix. But nonetheless, we've had similar announcements from other big tech companies in this town, and you just wonder. Uh, who's going to pick up these people who are being laid off. So are we going to start seeing unemployment increase? Are we going to start see, seeing pressure on income taxes? Are we going to start seeing pressure on corporation taxes if these companies are laying off people for a reason and presumably it's because the profitability is going to be down? So are we going to see those pressures coming through this year? I don't know if we see
3: them coming through this year. I, I do think we will see them uh, coming through at some stage. Um as you say, the, the the scale of job layoffs at the moment in the tech sector are, are are not huge, but when you add them all up, when this is all over, they may be significant enough. And the thing about those jobs is that they are pretty much all really well-paid jobs. And we know that the Irish income tax system is very reliant on people uh, with very well-paid jobs, uh, that there's a group of uh, very well-paid people pay a large chunk of tax. The group in the middle pay another large chunk, and lower-paid people, because of the way the system is structured, uh, pay very little income tax at all. They pay some PRSI, uh, some income tax at the margin, get caught by USC, uh, but but generally not not a huge amount. So so that is a exposure for the ex- the exchequer. I think it may be a while coming through because the labour market is still very tight. Uh, you'd expect a lot of those people to still pick up jobs. Uh, the professional labour market still seems to be very tight for lawyers, accountants, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there isn't as yet sign of kind of a general weakness in the labour market. The other area where you might see it come through is corporation tax. And look, we've we've all said before that it can't go up anymore and, and it seems impossible to forecast. And the reason for that is that the whole thing is slightly opaque, uh, that we don't know precisely why... it corporation tax has gone up so much in the last few years beyond a general understanding that corporate profits of the companies based here have gone up and they're booking more profits here and Ireland's getting a a, a slice of that. There was an IP
1: bounce wasn't there a few years There was an IP
3: bounce a few years ago Uh, but you'd have to reckon with the tech companies making less profit this year uh, and and that seems a given uh, because they're restructuring that that is going to feed through in some way to Irish tax revenue. Now the flip side of that may be may come in that IP factor that you've uh, alluded to there because a lot of the profit, these companies, a lot of them moved their intellectual property to Ireland. The earnings from that have been protected by capital allowances for since that happened. Those capital allowances may now start to be run down. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that while the companies may be making less profit and declaring less profit in Ireland, that more of that profit may be taxable. So there may be a a plus and a minus there. And looking in from the outside, it's very hard to to judge where that's going to land. But yes, you're right. Tech companies are weaker their profits are going to be less. That does put a question mark, I think, certainly over the growth rate of corporation tax. And that has paid for a lot of good things and a lot of sins over the last few years for Ireland. There's no doubt about that.
1: Cliff, what do you make of Gabriel McClough's comments over the weekend about our GDP, that, you know, there's real people behind uh, a lot of these uh, numbers where we have fantastic uh, GDP economic growth We're star players in an OECD context and within the EU, uh, et cetera. And... Um, he was out defending that uh, over the weekend. He did an interview with the uh, Financial Times where he said that real people were, were behind these numbers. But Paul Krugman has called it leprechaun economics in the past and he kind of dismisses laughs at, at those kind yeah, of suggestions. Yeah, what yeah he, make? he
3: said Irish officials are in denial. Yeah, I think uh, the central bank governor probably got caught a bit in terms of uh, a newspaper taking a headline out of out of what he said. And, you know, when you're in that position, you need to be maybe uh, careful about how you word things. I mean, I... I he's right. Uh, The the scale of multinational activity has, of real multinational activity has expanded hugely here over the last uh, five or six years, uh, you know, since those IP moves in 2015. Uh, That has led to more employment. It has led to more income tax, more corporation tax and more kind of real economic activity. The problem, I suppose, is that it's also led to uh, a huge increase in cash moving through Ireland, uh, which has messed up our GDP figures, uh, and, and also factors such as companies which are based in Ireland, which have their international headquarters in Ireland, arranging for goods to be manufactured overseas and that counting towards our GDP figures because of the uh, the way that these figures are counted because the transaction is organised from Ireland, if you like. But obviously that is of absolutely zero economic benefit for Ireland.
1: It's so, like the aircraft leasing sector.
3: The same is, again, which because planes are worth such vast amounts yeah, of money. So we're uh, a
1: big player in that sector, but it's small in terms of employment. Absolutely. But they are well paid. Yeah.
3: And then there's the pharma sector, which, uh, as the central bank governor pointed out, you know, real output.
1: To, real output
3: and real output Back to the back to the United States, which I think is is different from the tech sector, uh, and is kind of has raised eyebrows in the United States as well in terms of people asking, well, "Why aren't these companies, produ- you know, producing these drugs in America?" And the re- part of the reason is, you know, because it's they have tax advantages in producing them here. That's not all Ireland's fault, but nonetheless, but you know, this this is a reputational thing for Ireland at the moment, and it's hard to see a way out of it really, when you have people like Paul Krugman coming out and saying Irish officials are in denial probably a little bit unfair because Irish officials are trying to warn that we can't rely on these corporation tax and figures going on forever and they're saying the Department of Finance are now producing borrowing figures which are adjusted for what they say is the windfall element of corporation tax revenues. but nonetheless, this is a problem for Ireland when when Irish economic figures are enough in the fourth quarter of last year to affect the overall Eurozone picture and to stop the Eurozone from slipping into recession or stagnation uh, and, and keep it in growth. Uh, when we're top of the OECD Growth League, uh, when we have uh, an economy which is ranked in the top 30 in terms of overall size, despite the small size of the country. Uh, we all know that there's something wrong there. We all know that the economy didn't grow by 12% last year in terms of what we feel, uh, you know, in terms of jobs, in terms of incomes, in terms of the real things that matter to people. There have been attempts to, uh, you know, to, to to develop new economic data and to look at different ways of measuring this. And, and a lot of these are, are useful. Uh, modified domestic demand, for example, and, and GNI Star, the poorly named uh Poorly named aggregate that was developed Terrorism a few years measure. ago. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think they needed a bit of PR advice in terms of the name, and and also the figures from GNI Star tend to come out so far in, in arrears. If you like, that the the, the debate has, has been had by the time we know what they are. So there's still a problem there.
1: Okay, Cliff Taylor and Jack Horgan Jones, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now, and we come back. I'll be joined by Connor Pope, who'll be telling me about the latest financial scams being perpetrated by criminals. Back in a few moments.
2: At EY, our
0: purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com.
1: Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, delighted to be joined by Connor Pope, our Consumer Affairs Correspondent on the line. Now, Connor, tell us what scam is being perpetrated against Revolut customers in Ireland. Well, what's happening with Revolut customers
0: is they're getting scam text messages and they appear to be from the payments app and they appear to be legitimate. And what the customers are being asked to do is to verify certain details. And if they don't do that, they'll face having their accounts frozen. And within that text message, there's a link. They follow the link. They're brought to what looks like a legitimate Revolut page. They enter some details. And after that, the fraudsters start stealing their money. Now, to be fair to Revolut, they're not alone in this type of scam because this type of scam happens across the board. But I think one of the reasons why they hit the headlines in recent days is because the financial services and pensions ombudsman referenced them and said that in the past, because Revolut was based in Lithuania, it was trickier for the ombudsman to get involved, but it should be easier in the future for the ombudsman to get involved in these kinds of stories and these kinds of scams related to Revolut because Revolut now has an Irish IBAN.
1: Yeah, and of course they're offering uh, credit cards in the Irish market now, so they're extending their their reach here. Big time. Yeah, You were writing recently about eight scams um, that consumers here should be wary of. Just take us through the, the sort of headline ones, if you like, and how to avoid them. Well, I suppose
0: the, 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 there are so many of them, they keep evolving. But the, the, the ones that are very
1: common at the moment,
0: the, the one that we refer to there is the smishing scam. And that will see the criminals send you a text message containing a link. And that link will lead you to a page that looks legitimate. You enter some details and then the criminals can access your financial details on that one. So that's, a, that, that's one of the very, very common scams. But there's a whole lot more. For instance, the invoice scam is one that targets businesses in particular. And it's, people are particularly vulnerable to it now. Um, as a result of the of the, the exit from the Irish banking market of KBC and Ulster Bank. So there's a lot of volatility and a lot of movement within the banking sector. And the way the invoice scam works is you get an email from a company that you do business with saying that they've updated their financial details and here's their new bank account number. So you, could, you, you need to put that into your systems. And then you might hear nothing from the company for a couple of months. An invoice falls due. You pay using the new uh, banking details that you've been sent. And then, of course, the company contacts you to say that they have not received any payment. And that's because the criminals have piggybacked on your relationship with that company, sent you uh, crimin- uh, th- their own bank details and that money is gone. So that's a very common one. The romance scam is really common and it targets very, very vulnerable people and it's particularly sinister because of the way it targets individuals because a lot of the scams, the email scams, the smishing scams, the, 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 all of these things, they tend to be sent out in sweeping, uh, massive volumes and as a result, you know, they, they just hope to get lucky every now and then. But with the romance scam, they can target individuals, they can look up the likes of RIP, they can look up Um, various different sources to find out about an individual and then they target that individual. They pretend to be somebody else. They pretend to be maybe someone working on an oil rig in the North Sea or a a, 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 a soldier based in Afghanistan or wherever it might be. They build up a relationship. Then they ask the person they've built up the relationship with for money. The money is sent and and then it's kind of game over. And that's probably where most people are losing most money
1: in that type of scam. Yeah, it is big business, isn't it? I mean, 45 million in scams in the second half of 2021. I mean, that's, you know, the goes to 2 million a week. It's an absolutely huge business. And to be perfectly honest, that's only
0: the money that the Banking and Payments Federation know about. Mm-hmm. Because an awful lot of people are too embarrassed to report that they have been a victim of a scam. Um, and so we, we, we say 45 million. It could be substantially higher than that. And what we know globally is that the scam industry is worth billions of euro every single year. And I think one of the things that I think has changed in the last four or five years is, with, is the ease with which criminals can get involved in the scam. Because in times past, if you wanted to piggyback on a legitimate number... So, if you wanted to pretend to be Bank of Ireland or AIB or Revolut or OnPost or the Attorney General or whoever it might be, it required a huge level of computer programming ability and to be able to hack into systems and to be able to, you know, uh, create these bogus numbers. Whereas nowadays, you can download that software from the internet for a tenner or for twenty euros, and that means that it's much easier for criminal enterprises to get involved in it. And the other reality is that this is a cross-border, transnational. Criminal enterprise, which means it's incredibly difficult for the authorities in this country or in any other country in the world to actually pursue, detect, capture, and convict the perpetrators of these crimes. Because what happens is I might get a text message purported to be from Revolut or Onpost or wherever it might be. Um, I fill in the details as I'm requested to do on a website that looks legit. My money is then transferred to an Irish bank account. Then that bank account, which is a mule account, it, it, it has, The person behind it doesn't know what's happening. That account it then transfers the money to an account in Italy, which transfers the, the money to an account in Hungary, which then might go to sub-Saharan Africa or to China or wherever it might be. And it becomes impossible, A, to follow the money. And then even if you can't follow the money, it becomes even more difficult to track down the criminals.
1: Yeah. Have you been subject to a scam yourself, Connor? Do you know what? I've almost fallen
0: victim to it a couple of times. And there was one when I got a message from that claimed to be from Netflix telling me that there was a problem with my account. Now, Kieran, who wants to lose their Netflix access on a a Tuesday night at 8 o'clock in the evening? And I was like, oh my God, there's a problem with my account. So I followed the link, and this is maybe four or five years ago, before the smishing scams had really uh, become so commonplace. And I was literally on the cusp of entering my details when this tiny little voice in my head said, what are you doing, you gombean? Have you not been telling people about this for for years so I stopped I contacted Netflix and they confirmed that it was a scam another time I was trying to buy something on eBay and I really wanted this thing now what it was is entirely irrelevant and I just missed out on it and then 24 hours later, I got an email saying, a oh, second chance offer. And it was purported to be from eBay saying that the the top bidder had, had had bowed out of the transaction and I could now send the money and I would get it. But the thing is, that scam artist said, if you, you don't have to send it via eBay, you can send it via Western Union or one of those money transfer organisations. And I think there's certain red flags. That, and when you hear that somebody wants the money to be sent via Western Union or indeed any of those money transfer things, that's one of the big red flags. And Western around. Union yeah. will be the first one. So I've nearly been caught a couple of times, but uh, I think I'm fairly sceptical and incredibly cynical of all correspondence, whether or not it comes from email, text,
1: or even telephone calls. Connor, a couple of top tips for people who aren't sure if a link they've been sent by email or text or whatever, whether it's legit or not. What tips can you give them to ensure it is? Well, I'd say the first and most important
0: tip for people to remember is that under no circumstances ever Will a reputable organisation contact you via text message or email with a link asking for financial details? No company will ever do that. So that's the first and most important thing for people to remember. If you get a text message from OnPost saying that there's a problem with a delivery and they need 190 in customs charges and there's a link, it's a scam. If you get a message from AIB or Bank of Ireland with a link, it's a scam. If you get a message from Revolut with a link, it's a scam. And that rule will save you money. That rule will save potential victims. The other red flag is if somebody is asking you to give them money in a hurry, well, then that's another red flag because people, the scam artists, the criminals, they will try and put you under pressure. They'll try and say, oh, yeah, we need to act fast or you're going to lose out on this thing or else your account is going to be frozen or blah, blah, blah. So if you're being asked to do something in a hurry, take a breath, pause. But the first and then the third thing that people should remember if they want to avoid being caught out is... If you get communication from any company, whatever it might be, don't follow the embedded links, but make contact with the company directly yourself through their landline or through their legitimate contact channels. And that way that you will be sure that the transaction is legitimate. But the bottom line is, Kieran, trust nobody.
1: Yeah, sure. And finally, I suppose there's always been this view that it's elderly people who are targeted for these scams and they're the ones who lose out because maybe they're not as uh, tech savvy as as younger people. But actually, the data shows that it's young and old who are being uh, hit by these scams. Actually, the data shows that younger people are far
0: more likely to fall victim to a scam than older people for the very simple reason that young that younger people are slightly more trusting. So according to data from PTSB that was released just before Christmas, those under 45 are considerably more likely to fall victim to a financial fraud than older people because the instinct of older people when they get those kind of messages are, it's a scam. Whereas I think a younger generation, Gen Zs and Millennials, might be thinking, oh, well, I'm so used to transferring money to my mate's via re- via." or wherever it might be, that this is just the way we live now. So surprisingly, it's the older people who are better at protecting themselves when it comes
1: to this kind of enterprise. Okay, listeners, you have been warned. Conor Pope, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Jack Horgan-Jones, Cliff Taylor, and Connor Pope for joining me on the show. Declan Conlon produced the program with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.